Chapter Four of A Mayfair Magician, A Romance of Criminal Science. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James K. White, Chula Vista. A Mayfair Magician, A Romance of Criminal Science by George Griffith. Chapter Four. The next day, the engagement between Grace and Harold was a formally accomplished fact, and the occasion was duly celebrated by a dinner at the manor to which all the best people in the countryside were invited. There was, naturally, a considerable amount of heart-searching and disappointment, which in some cases amounted to disgust among the many marriageable daughters and their mothers, at seeing the greatest prize in the northern matrimonial market carried off so swiftly by the daughter of a stranger who however distinguished he might be in the world of science was nevertheless in their estimation far below county family rank still there was no denying the fact that the beauty and indescribable charm of grace romanus placed her far above any of the other young ladies who might have aspired to be the future mistress of enstone manor and the millions which sir godfrey's heir would inherit some of these young ladies and their mammas, especially the mammas, had tried to dislike her, and failed. Others, rashly daring, had even tried to snub her, and these had failed more disastrously still. Wherefore the county, as represented by its territorial and financial aristocracy, made up its mind to accept the inevitable, and to look as pleased as it could. As was only natural under the circumstances, the dinner was a great success. Sir Godfrey for once came out of his shell. He ceased to be the retired student who passed most of his life among books, and revealed another character which society had scarcely suspected, that of the universal student, the widely travelled man who, so to speak, had been everywhere and done everything. Harold played a modest but excellent second to him grace was delightful and charmed even those who would have given most to be in her place as for the professor he as harold put it afterwards just let himself go and simply dazzled even the keen northern intellects by the brilliancy of his conversation in fact when the guests thought over the evening's doings the next morning it seemed to many of them as though they had been passing some hours on the borderland of a strange world one of the guests at the dinner was a Mr. Bonham Denyer, a well-built and decidedly good-looking man, about forty to forty-five, clean-shaven, square-headed, and slightly hawk-nosed, with steel-blue eyes, which were rather too small for his face, and well-cut lips which would have been all the better for being a trifle fuller. He was staying at the Dower House with the professor, who had introduced him to Sir Godfrey as an old friend and college chum now the head of the London firm of solicitors which managed all his legal and financial business for him during his travels. Mr. Bonham Denyer was also, in a sense, the legal guardian and trustee of Miss Grace, as her mother had left him the management of her little fortune. Such an introduction, of course, ensured a hearty welcome from Sir Godfrey and Harold, and as the lawyer's manner was quite irreproachable, and his conversation interesting beyond the common, the acquaintance had quickly ripened into something like intimacy. When they had taken leave of their host, the little party from the dower house went home, 
and when Grace had said good night and gone to bed after receiving another of those strange caresses from her uncle, the two men went into the professor's den, and although it was getting well on towards midnight, Halkine got out the spirit stand, a siphon of soda, and a box of cigars, and they settled themselves in two big armchairs on either side of the fireplace, as though they were at the beginning rather than the end of a country evening. "'Help yourself, my dear Denier. There is whiskey and brandy, and I think you will find the tobacco as good as usual.' "'Thanks,' replied the lawyer, mixing himself a whiskey and soda, and picking out a nice, long, well-molded, yellow-speckled cigar. The professor did the same, and when Mr. Denier had lit his cigar, he sat down and leaned back, and after a few meditative puffs, looked across at his host and said slowly, "'Then I presume, Halkine, from what you said this afternoon, that you have absolutely made up your mind to carry this thing through?' "'Absolutely,' he replied, taking a sip of his whiskey and soda. "'Don't you see, Denier, that it is literally the chance of a lifetime for a man like myself? Here is everything ready to our hands, a man worth millions, two or three certain, perhaps more.' an adopted son and heir who has been obliging enough to fall madly in love with grace and grace well quite prepared to believe that she's in love with him and so to marry him by the way interrupted mr denyer i presume you have no intention of indicating the true nature of your relationship with miss grace either before or after marriage oh no replied the professor quickly there isn't the slightest necessity for that besides Look at the curious impression it would create, and the difficulty of explaining matters to her. Oh, no, much better as it is. Why do you ask? Only because it just struck me that such relationships are traceable, you know. And if there were any hitch in our contemplated proceedings, and you incurred the hostility of this young millionaire, as he will be in due course, and he set himself to find things out, it would be still more difficult then." However, if you have made up your mind, there's an end of it. Then, after a little pause, he went on more slowly. You want my help now. To put it plainly, you have got to have it, and my silence as well, and I have come down to give it you. What are the conditions? Will five thousand paid out of the estate as soon as I get control of it be enough? No, said the other decidedly. My figure is ten thousand, but if you like, you may pay in two installments, one as soon as you get control of the property, and the second, say, in twelve months' time, provided that we are equally successful in getting the young heir out of the way as well. After all, he is only an alien and a usurper. I don't think we need consider him very much. And as for your niece, it will not be difficult to console her for her loss." "'What an infernal scoundrel you are, Denyer,' said the professor, quietly, almost contemplatively. "'When I commit a crime, as, of course, society would call this operation, I do it from purely unselfish motives. Personally, I don't profit to the extent of a sovereign. I do it simply in the interests of science, and because those interests, as you know, are absolutely supreme, and because they cannot be served in any other way.' But you, you do it just for money, mere money. Have you ever really thought what a contemptible thing it is to commit crime for money? 
my dear fellow laughed the lawyer without the slightest appearance of offence you really must pardon me if i decline to follow you into any of your metaphysical tangles to be quite frank with you what your science is to you money is to me i am quite prepared to make it honestly as society would put it and to a certain extent i do at the same time when i get a good opportunity of making it well we will say otherwise i don't see why i should not avail myself of it wherefore the question for me here is not your motives nor has it anything to do with the interests of science it is just whether or not you are prepared to come to my terms it is a great deal of money and it might be put to very much better uses said the professor with a sigh of perfectly genuine regret for strange as it may seem what he had just said was the absolute truth still there will be plenty left so i don't think we need quarrel over that you can make out your bond or whatever you may call it and i will sign it in the morning then i think we must get to work quite so said mr denyer i entirely agree with you but before finally committing myself to what may after all be a rather risky piece of work i think you ought in common justice to tell me exactly what the said work is going to be i don't suppose you have any objection to that not the slightest my dear denyer replied the professor on the contrary i think it will be distinctly advantageous that you should know the circumstances fully he took a sip of his whiskey and soda one or two pulls at his cigar and went on leaning back in his chair and fixing his eyes upon the lawyers without going into any tedious technicalities which might need a good deal of explanation i may as well get to the point at once and tell you a fact which i think you will take without question on the strength of such reputation as i have i have discovered that sir godfrey is suffering quite unknown to himself or his ordinary medical adviser from one of the most obscure diseases that is known either to medical or mental science briefly it may be described as divided personality by that i mean a form of almost unknown insanity the principal symptom of which is the possibility of dividing by certain known means the personality of the subject into two entirely different and even absolutely antagonistic parts i need hardly tell you that in every human being there are what are called in ordinary language good and evil qualities instincts which make for what our moralists call the right and others for what they call their wrong yes yes i follow you so far said the lawyer taking another sip at his glass no one ought to know that better than a man of my trade but all the same you are getting me a bit out of my depth are you going to tell me that it is possible to as it were divide a man into two and set the good against the bad and vice versa a sort of jekyll and hyde business oh dear no said the professor it is a much more serious business than that when a person who understands this particular disease meets with a subject afflicted with it it is quite possible for him to so treat the malady that without any black magic of the jekyll and hyde sort he can render either side of the subject's mental being the good or the bad as necessity may demand totally unconscious of the doings of the other half you follow me i hope follow you exclaimed denyer getting up from his chair and putting his back to the fireplace i should think i do just now you called me an infernal scoundrel 
I'll be hanged if I know what to call you. I know that I am not everything that a moralist might wish me to be, but I tell you candidly that there is something so diabolical about that idea that, well, I must say that I don't quite like it. Of course, I presume that I am to gather from what you said that somehow, by these infernal arts of yours, you have discovered that Sir Godfrey is suffering from such a disease as this. You are going to divide his nature into two and make the evil work against the good for your own ends. And yes, I'll confess, for my own as well. And then, why, good Lord, you might as well make a man his own murderer. And there you sit, talking about all these atrocious possibilities as quietly as I should hear the confession of a criminal whose defense I had to get up. To be quite frank, Halkine, there is something uncanny about this that I don't altogether like. Now, am I right in what I have just said? Perfectly right, my dear fellow, said the professor, laughing and turning his luminous eyes up at him. You have, as I might say in medical language, diagnosed the case to perfection. I mean Sir Godfrey's case. I have studied him now closely for some months and am perfectly certain of my own diagnosis. With just a little assistance, I will, mentally and morally speaking, cut that man in two. One half shall go to sleep and forget. The other half, which to the world will look just like the whole man, will do exactly as I want it to do. In fact, he went on, his voice rising slightly, I could make him, I mean, that half of him, do anything. I could make it degrade what the world knows of Sir Godfrey Enstone, county magnate and millionaire, to the lowest level of the criminal you ever helped or prosecuted. I could drive him, yes, even to murder or self-murder, which, under the circumstances, might perhaps be more convenient, said the lawyer, leaning back in his chair again and putting the tips of his fingers together. Is that what you are driving at, Halkine? It might be necessary, said the professor, and it would certainly be possible. Would it really? said Denyer, with something very like a sneer in his voice. Well, you called me a scoundrel just now, but I'm afraid I cannot retort that it is a case of Arcadis Ambo. I don't know what crimes you have committed already, but if all you have said is true, and from what I know of you I haven't the slightest doubt that it is, you are not a criminal. You are something more, something that the language of criminology hasn't any word to describe. You can remain apparently innocent yourself while you are making others criminals and self-murderers. Well, as I said, the vocabulary of crime hasn't any word that would fit you. I quite agree with you, said the professor, smiling at the very obvious expression of fear which had come over his accomplice's face while he was speaking. But you see, my dear fellow, although it is rather difficult for me to explain it to you, in the higher realms of science these things don't count. Science, like nature, considers ends, not means— and where those ends are to be attained, there is neither right nor wrong. When Mother Earth relieved herself the other day of an internal strain by the eruption of Martinique, she didn't consider the trifle of the thirty or forty thousand lives which were lost in the process. Her end was simply the restoration of the balance of volcanic force. The people died because they happened to be there, that was all. She would have done just the same in an unpeopled desert. And since science is the handmaid, 
the interpreter of nature, her methods must be the same. In the present case, I, as a servant of science, must act upon the same principles, and Sir Godfrey Enstone happens to be in such an unfortunate position as the inhabitants of Martinique were. Science, that is to say, nature, will take her course. And that, Halkine, said Denyer, helping himself to another whiskey and soda, means, in plain English, that you are going to use this infernal science, or whatever it is of yours, to make this unfortunate man commit a fraud, as it were, on himself and his adopted son, and further, if necessary, make him, well, dispose of himself when he becomes superfluous, and that you call science. Precisely, said the professor, still in the same impassive tone. While he is necessary, he will remain. When he is unnecessary, he will probably disappear. But you needn't trouble yourself about that. I have asked him to come and have a little bachelor supper with us tomorrow night, and then you shall watch the beginning of the comedy which I propose to play. Of course, if it happens to end in tragedy, that will only be because it is necessary. Halkine, said the other, straightening himself up, we have been friends for a long time. I am about as dishonest and unscrupulous as disappointment and necessity ever made a man. But you, you are not dishonest, because you are not human enough. You are not unscrupulous, because you haven't any scruples. I do not know what you are. In fact, I am not altogether sure that you are entirely human. I am not entirely sure of that myself, replied the professor, with another smile. And now... I think, as they say in the East, we will take one last peg and go to bed. End of chapter 4 Recording by James K. White, Chula Vista